Hi, and welcome to Office Hours, the broadcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary. I'm Scott Clark. Last fall, Office Hours had the opportunity to speak with Dr. John Ventil about his uncle and the great Reformed defender of the faith, Cornelius Ventil. The interview focuses on Ventil, the family man, pastor, neighbor, and uncle. Cornelius Ventil, or Case, as he was known to family and friends, was born in the Netherlands to a dairy farmer. He moved to the United States at age 10. He grew up in Northwest Indiana, attended Calvin College and Seminary, and Princeton Theological Seminary, where he became a student of Gerhardus Voss, J. Gresham Machen, and other Reformed luminaries. He took a Ph.D. at Princeton University in Philosophy and a pastorate in 1927 in Spring Lake, Michigan. He taught briefly at Princeton Seminary, and when Machen founded Westminster Seminary in 1929, he tapped Young Case to teach apologetics in the new seminary. Initially, Ventil was quite reluctant to join the new school, as John Meether and Daryl Hart explained. At first, Ventil declined Machen's invitation. He had no intention of remaining at Princeton after the seminary's reorganization that year put modernists on the board of trustees and after Machen, to protest the changes at Princeton, had decided to start a new seminary. But neither did Van Til want to teach at a fledgling seminary in downtown Philadelphia. He and his wife had just given birth to a baby boy, and he was looking for a call to a Christian Reformed congregation back home in Michigan. At first, Machen sent Ned Stonehouse to Michigan to persuade young Van Til to join the Westminster faculty, but Ventil said no. Finally, Machen himself made the train trip to Michigan to appeal personally to Ventil, who finally relented and agreed to come for a year. As it turned out, Ventil would spend the rest of his career at Westminster. He retired in 1972, but continued to write, and he died in 1987. Ventil is best known as a pioneer and proponent of a way of defending the faith that is sometimes known as presuppositionalism and sometimes is simply called the Vantillian apologetic. His fundamental concern in apologetics was to defend the faith in a way that is consistent with the faith it endeavors to defend. Throughout the history of Christianity, defenders of the faith have often been tempted to defend the faith in ways that seem initially promising, but were ultimately either inconsistent with Christian doctrine or were somehow misleading. After all, the faith Christians want to proclaim to the world and to defend against criticism is the faith of Scripture. It is the faith of the Church summarized in her creeds and confessions. Thus, in his most basic book, The Defense of the Faith, Van Til did not begin with a series of arguments about why Christianity is the most reasonable thing to believe. Instead, he began with a brief summary of the Christian faith itself. In his engagement with non-Christian thought, Rather than pretending that there is such a thing as neutral, undefined space between Christianity and unbelief, Van Til took Christianity as his starting point. God, he argued, has already interpreted the world for us, and it is our business to submit to that interpretation. Thus, Van Til set about showing not only the inadequacy of other ways of defending the faith, but especially of the futility of unbelief. And he did so using a series of colorful, memorable diagrams and parables. For example, he argued that the unbeliever is like a little girl who sits on her father's lap. She can only slap her father because he holds her on his lap. 
In order to deny her father, she must assume him, and she depends on him even as she denies him. The unbeliever is like a man of water in a body of water, climbing a ladder of water. In comparing different apologetic methods, he often spoke about Mr. Black, who is an unbeliever, Mr. Gray, who is an Arminian, and Mr. White, who is a Calvinist. The Christianity that Ventil wanted to defend was nothing less than the Christianity of the Bible, of the Canons of Dort, and the Westminster Standards. If you'd like to learn more about the work and teaching of Cornelius Ventil, contact the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, at wscal.edu slash bookstore, or call them at 760-735-2665, or email them at bookstore at wscal.edu. If you're not familiar with Ventil's approach to Christian apologetics, you might begin with his pamphlet, Why I Believe in God. His basic apologetics text is The Defense of the Faith. You will also want to read John Meather's outstanding biography, Cornelius Ventil, Reformed Apologist and Churchman. These titles are available from the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. And now, this special edition of Office Hours devoted to Cornelius Ventil. Hi, this is Scott Clark for Office Hours at Westminster Seminary, California. I'm visiting in Traverse City, Michigan at Redeemer PCA with the nephew of Cornelius Ventil. Uh, This is L. John Ventil, who was 32 years, a professor at Grove City College, and who is currently a fellow at the Center for Vision and Values associated with Grove City College, Uh, He's a fellow for law and humanities, born in Coopersville, Michigan in 1937. And we're visiting with uh, John this morning uh, to to, uh, learn a little bit about the human side of Cornelius Ventil. Everyone knows, everyone in the Reformed community anyway, knows something of uh, the, the work of the great Cornelius Ventil, one of the most significant Reformed theologians of the 20th century. He... Everyone knows his uh, seminal volume on apologetics, The Defense of the Faith, and his, uh, I think, monumental critique of Karl Barth, uh, The New Modernism, uh, his continued interaction with evangelicalism. Uh, Ventil was one of the first people in the Reformed community to really identify, after Machen, the dangers of of Reformed um, adoption of broad uh, evangelicalism. And, and so he's, he's been a formative, seminal, influential, uh, confessional Reformed theologian uh, uh, for, for decades and decades. And, and certainly we here at Westminster Seminary California are committed to continuing that uh, legacy of defending the faith uh, according uh, to the Word of God and uh, defending the faith by recognizing that uh, you've got to begin with with biblical presuppositions that uh, that uh, there's no such thing as human autonomy, and that uh, the faith that we want to defend and propound is is the biblical faith. We don't want to defend some other sort of generic theism and then suddenly switch horses in the middle of the discussion to Christian theism. But the the discussion this morning uh, on office hours with uh, with Professor Ventil 
is uh, not so much apologetics, but uh, in light of John Meather's recent biography of Van Til, we, we wanted to try to get behind the Van Til of the books and even the Van Til of the classroom and the two circles, the creator-creature distinction, uh, and, and to um, Uncle Case, uh, an Ohm Case Van Til, uh, that, uh, that John knew as a, as a boy and, and as an adult, uh, knew as a family man, uh, knew as a pastor, and, uh, and as an uncle. Well, welcome to Office Hours, John. Thank you for your time. Well, nice to visit with you. And um, after our conversation and your request that I reflect a little, I made a few notes. And so I'm going to refer to some of those, and then you can ask about them. And this isn't an exhaustive list, but some things that came to mind thinking about the human side of Uncle Case. Now, the first thing I put down, and these things are not necessarily in chronological order, but the first one in time, I think, would also be the first one I'm mentioning that as I remember in the late 40s, he came to our house. I was one of five children. And he came to our house because my two of my sisters, I was the youngest, the two older ones were to be graduated from the eighth grade, probably Seymour Christian School in Grand Rapids. And uh, he came to the house and he went to the graduation. And the reason I mention it is because he had a sense of humor and kidded uh, all the time. And he liked to kid the children and play with children and so forth. So this small little incident, I think, shows that. Well, the girls were, those were days when most people didn't have a lot of money. So uh, to have nice dresses for graduation was quite unusual. And so the, the girls had uh, fancy dresses. And of course, I don't know much about it, except I remember what he said. And the women would say that they were eyelet dresses. But to him, he said to the girls, well, those are some dresses you have. They're full of holes. Well, uh, it looked like curtain material, all the little holes and all that. But, of course, the girls giggled and got a big kick out of that. But that's the, the sort of practical, down-to-earth stuff that he, he talked about very often. I mean, he, he was the formal thinker, and I'll come to that in, in a moment with some stories. But that's the first one comes to mind. And then he went to the graduation, which I thought was quite something. He was a busy man, but, and he had a lot of relatives. Uh, some kind of like my dad, Sam Van Til, and uh, maybe he did too, and that's why he showed up. I was a young boy of five or something at that point. So, uh, But I remember him coming, and I remember that little touch of humor. Well, uh, the next thing I have down just in passing is to, and I'm thinking of Scott here, the, the, his interest in the family a little bit is uh, Uncle Case, as we called him, was one of ten boys. And we have a picture of that, and we can give you a copy of that, just like I have the picture of the homestead here, and I'll give these to Scott, and maybe they'll be online if anybody wants to look at them eventually. I don't know about that. But we do have a picture of him uh, with his mom and dad and all the boys. And then we have uh, a lot of family pictures that hang in a hallway uh, at our house, and there's a picture of his father who looked like Robert E. Lee with a full white beard and, and little grandma's is a small little woman. My wife always said, how did she ever have all those 10 boys and keep them all in line? Well, she looks like she could, but that's a little footnote. Now I'm thinking about where he lived for a long, long time on 16 Rich Avenue in suburban Philadelphia. It's probably Glenside or something. I'm not sure of that. But we were there many times, and I was doing research and writing in the Philadelphia area for somebody and so we would visit with him, and he loved that, and we loved it. And we'd take the boys over. Uh, we had three sons, and we have pictures of uh, the boys. But if you went there with the boys, 
he'd probably sit in the living room for a while and he'd have one of the boys on his lap and ask him about what he was doing. He was very interested in, in the, the details of children's lives when the relatives, when they came and, and uh, that's just part of who he was. So now if you went there, then he always offered, uh, and Aunt Reen, when she was alive, they'd, they'd offer uh, always food and cookies and tea and coffee and all that stuff. And they always had something for kids. So anybody who's been there, and I ran into somebody at this conference where we are who had been there as a student, and the same thing right away. You come in and they said it was Halloween and you got a big kick out of them visiting on that day. And But right away they serve food. Well, um, we had meals there, and uh, my wife and myself and the boys. Uh, but if you came in the evening uh, and a, you were a family member in the kitchen, he would reach to a high closet, open it up, and get out a nice bottle of wine and probably pour you a little glass of wine and have one himself. And um, that's probably not too widely known. As I said to Scott, I don't know how um, people, some people who know him, they might be surprised, but if he was a reformed man, so then that doesn't surprise us at all. <laughs> but uh, he didn't want to offend people, although he had colleagues, probably um, uh, John Murray, I, I think that John Murray was known to enjoy a glass of scotch or something once in a while too. But in his closet in the in the in the kitchen, the, the wine closet, you'd find that. Now the neighborhood around Rich uh, Avenue was a, a dead end street and a good block long off from some main road, Bethlehem Pike or something. I'm not sure. But just past him was a convent. I know that he, uh, from time to time, the many many years he lived there, he would find himself out walking and visit with the nuns. And I'm sure they, I didn't hear these conversations, but he referred to it, so I'm sure he engaged them in some basic ideas, although in his kindly, neighborly way. He was known as the pastor in the neighborhood. And by the way, if you looked up his his name in the Philadelphia phone book, it wasn't professor or it wasn't doctor, it was Reverend Van Til. And that's who, who he was. That's who he, he saw himself as, Reverend Van Til. The way that most people think of Van Til and, and know him is through uh, the, the syllabi and the books, uh, which from time to time were polemical. You know, Bart, Karl Barth called him a, a man-eater. Uh, so he, ha- he has this uh, almost uh, ferocious literary persona but that's not the case until you knew at all and and i think the fact that he listed himself in the phone book as reverend ventil says a lot about how he saw himself relative to the rest of the world that you know here's a farm boy grew up you know in a rural uh, christian reformed dutch reformed community uh, went to seminary became a minister and discharged his ministry uh, at least in part by teaching in a seminary, but at, at core, really, he's just a preacher of the word. Well, he was a good preacher, and I'll come back to that. Um, in the neighborhood, he was known as a pastor. They, they, it was a mixed neighborhood, I think, a nice neighborhood, certainly some kind of middle class. He had a nice stone house there, and they lived in that, I, I don't know how long, but I know probably in the 30s they bought it. They were there their whole life, and they had one son, and... Um, and then he was there until he died. Uh, the, but he was known as a pastor. Now, he told me uh, that uh, down the street, I think on the corner, there was a neighbor down there, you know, 10 houses down or so, who had trouble with the, the authorities because he had a vacant lot and it was full of weeds and he was going to be fined. Mm-hmm. Well, Uncle Case went down there and he helped the guy pull the weeds 
his, he had time in his busy schedule. He took time to go down, and I don't know how long he took, maybe part of several days, and they got the weeds pulled so it met the minimum for uh, zoning or something. But meanwhile, he had a chance to talk about the gospel with this man, no doubt, uh, while he was there. But to be able to do that, you have to yeah. be a certain kind. That was the farmer maybe coming out, but it was the pastor yeah. coming out. You know. I mean, and this is a fellow who isn't then just... Uh, you know, just a polemicist. This is a fellow who had a real concern for for human beings, and for their 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 well being, and most of all for their salvation. Now, today we call it compassion as a hot word to, when you when you do these things that some of us have done a whole lifetime didn't call them compassion. Uh, that comes out of the culture today, and that's what you would call it. He was a compassionate uh, person. Of course, he lived in that house a long time, and then his dear wife died, um, I would say, 10, 12 years or so before he did. And while she wasn't well, they had a stairway with one of those seats that you sit on and, and power hauls you up mm-hmm. and step. Well, of course, when we went over with the kids and they saw that thing, then he made sure they had a ride on that thing <laughs> up and down the, the stairwell going up to the next floor. And again, that just shows that love of children too uh, that you see now uh, at Westminster Seminary as well known probably some people would know this um, if you went to visit him and uh, he, he of course wrote all the time or taught uh, but he liked to visit and he had time to visit with uh, people but if you sat more than about 10 minutes in the office and needed more time on with the coat and out in the street and round and round the circle of the seminary. And that was a fixture for a lifetime of that seminary, at least on that property. I don't know how many years they were in that property, but everybody knows that. Yeah. And I don't know whether you knew that too, but when, when you went to visit, put on your coat. And that's how he got part of his exercise. And then I remember at Rich Avenue in his study, he had a, a, a belt gizmo and a big motor that, that he... Uh, put around this midsection and he, he would because uh, he sat all the time too much and he walked so that helped keep the flesh on the middle of his body down a little bit I think when the kids came there and saw it then he put it on the kids and then they yeah. vibrated and they'd never seen anything like that that's just the way he was in the 17th century John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth in the 20th century God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth J. Gresham Machen the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where, for 30 years, we've been fulfilling his vision of training men for ministry and preparing them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and his church. And then, of course, at the seminary, they decided to name a building after him at some point. He was still alive, and he didn't want any part of that, and so they waited until he was gone, because he was a modest man. And naturally, he was not an arrogant uh, egomaniac like some people who are well-known even in theology that I have known. He wasn't like that at all, and uh, he was a modest man. And again, I want to emphasize that business that he was a preacher. My wife and I, for example, we're fortunate to hear him preach in Munster, Indiana, in the Christian Reformed Church there, and he preached on Noah. And uh, that sermon's probably available. I have a bunch of his sermons on tape. They may be the same ones other people have. I'm going to be in touch with Scott here and and uh, get him copies or let him look at them. And if there's some new ones, unusual ones that nobody else has, of course, um, you can have them. 
but he liked to preach on the Old Testament, but he did it in a colorful way. That is to say, he made it practical. And he would, he would um, uh, take some part of the scene of uh, the ark and the people there and the animals, and he would relate it to the contemporary society to whom he was, to which he was preaching. And uh, so that's, again, the practical side of the man, which certainly uh, was there. Now, uh, uh, his wife, I, these are not necessarily in order, but I was always struck by the fact, it seemed to me at least, that his wife, by, by the standards of his education, had no education. Mm. But they had a wonderful marriage, and she was a homemaker, which was very important for him and provided for those kinds of needs. But he was very considerate of her, uh, loved her very much, and um, I think that was considered as a key thing because he could have... Uh, taken advantage of her, but he certainly did not. And so I'd say she was a typical housewife. She probably didn't have any sense of all this stuff that he was talking about when he lectured. No, probably that, she wasn't into that stuff, as we'd say today. Uh, another thing I made a note on here is that uh, this would capture his um, enthusiasm for his calling and his work. He was willing to explain anything of his work, anytime to anyone, anywhere. And I'm sure Scott knows that. And I just thought of that this morning, that that's, that shows his enthusiasm for his work and his total dedication to it. Now, he, he, he wasn't uh, overbearing and make people sit still and tie him down to listen, but if you showed any interest, whatever age you were, whatever level of education you had, he would talk to you. And uh, that's the pastoral side of him, too, that he, you didn't have to have a lot of education for him to talk to you. He would find a way to uh, communicate with you. When we visited there later with our boys, uh, we have pictures of that, and they, they were the older to at least remember it. Uh, he, he loved to have us stop by. We lived 25 miles away, but we'd go there once in a while. And um, he, he, you could just see he loved children, and he would kid with them. He'd find something uh, in their clothes or something, he would ask them what they do, and he just knew how to talk to little kids as well as uh, sophisticated theologians. As a boy, when did you begin to develop a sense uh, of who Uncle Case was? I mean, well, he, it, it was known uh, in the family that he was an accomplished theologian, so uh, I learned it from my father, from my father and mother, but my father's. Uh, deep appreciation for him and, and others in the family had that same kind of view so you knew there was something about this guy but when you, when you got old enough to understand or I got into academics myself uh, uh, although I was in the kind of home where, where uh, dad was an elder and, and those elders in those days were more educated than most American pastors today so we learned our theology at home so he was a great theologian mm -hmm. Uh, we were taught, and then when I became an adult and got into intellectual history and so forth, then I uh, appreciated his uh, work. On that point, I might just say that I'm working on a, a, a 15, 18,000 word piece on the source of uh, President Obama's ideas. And in there, I trace uh, uh, the history of some of the ideas and how they came about these guys here. So I had to deal with a little philosophy, and I I uh, quoted Uncle Case in there. Uh, I found it useful, his, uh, his uh, emphasis on theism, which is a dead letter to most people today. Now, I, I, uh, on, on an adult uh, academic level, after I had my own uh, extensive studies, some of my students thought I was in school too long, 
But at some point, I developed a few ideas. Uh, I have a bunch of stuff I've written, but uh, I have a little paper on the problem of authority, for example, which uh, I ran by him, and he appreciated that. But one that was new uh, that I tried out on him goes something like this. I had a four-point view of the problem of knowledge, and of course, a lot of his work had to do with epistemology, and I didn't use that word with my students. Um, but this is the substance of that idea uh, on, on knowledge. How can ordinary people understand it? How, what can you do in the classroom? And it goes like this. Uh, some things are made or created to be known in their essence by one of four ways was my notion, and they are this. Some of the things are made to be known in their essence by the powers of reason. Some things are made to be known in their essence by the senses and experience. Some things in their essence are made to be known by uh, intuitive insight. And my example there is the love is between man and woman. It's not rational. If you, is there's humor if you try and analyze a marriage rationally. It's humor. That's because the essence isn't made to be known that way. It's an immediate, this intuition in this sense is an immediate apprehension, maybe a better word, but an immediate apprehension of the essence of whatever it is. And there are things like that. And then, of course, the fourth is revelation. And revelation has two senses. In one sense, everything is by revelation. You'd have to go to general and special there. But here we're thinking of the essence of faith. So if you have these categories, and then you find that some people will reduce everything to reason, and that's rationalism. Some people will reduce everything to experience, and then they, then they distort things that um, uh, don't belong there. And um, uh, I remember having uh, Professor Bonson visit uh, Grove City College at one point, and I, he was there for a day or two and gave some lectures and talked to students. And one thing that impressed me is whenever there was a difficult question, he lapsed back into reason to explain it because he was a brilliant logician. And I said something to him in my kitchen about it later, and he didn't really like that very much, but I was applying my little idea. My point is I ran this by Uncle Case. He was probably 80 by then, but pretty sharp, and he thought it was a pretty good idea. Now, I'm not saying he endorsed it and would, uh, or so, but he thought he didn't see anything wrong with it off the top of his head, and I kind of liked that. When he was teaching at Westminster in the 30s, either in the same class or in the same year or very close to each other, he had a remarkable collection of students. And you may have the facts, uh, Dr. Clark, better than I do, but I know Rush Dooney, which if you don't know who that is, Dr. Clark will have to explain that. Francis Schaefer, Evan Runner, I was able to study with Evan Runner and uh, Carl McIntyre. And I think there was another person. They were all there at the same time and students of his. And then they went off in all these different directions. And I just think that's kind of a remarkable thing to uh, observe about him. It's not particularly personal and practical, but at least I thought that was an interesting thing. Yes. Actually, I have a, a couple of questions. One, uh, you know, because people know Ventil primarily through his writings, they don't know him as a churchman. And one of the things I liked about Mether's biography of Ventil is the way he put Ventil in his churchly context. Uh, Case Ventil was raised in the Christian Reformed Church, and he always loved, uh, you know, we, we sometimes refer you know, to Holy Mother Church, and he always loved the church, the visible church, and, and the, particularly the Christian Reformed Church, the Dutch Reformed Church, uh, and the Heidelberg Catechism. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about what, what it was like uh, uh, in a sense, growing up in that world and 
and how until uh, how Uncle Case related to the Heidelberg Catechism. Until Uncle Case would uh, be particularly at home with the spirit of the Heidelberg that you see in the first question, uh, what is my only comfort in life and death? What is my only comfort in death that I, with my body and soul, it's a personal thing, it's a warm thing. But you say he was a churchman, um, that, that continental form of uh, church polity that, uh, that we grew up in with the Christian reform, I, I, it, it isn't Congregationalism, but it isn't Presbyterian either. And, uh, with, a, with a capital P. I mean, it would be with a, perhaps with a lowercase p, but, but in, a, in a formal sense, there are some, some differences. Well, when I teach this to my students, just in passing, whatever I was teaching, this kind of thing might come up. You say, well, where's the locus of power in this or that form of, of polity? And in the Episcopal, it's at the top, and at the Congregational, it's at the bottom, and the Presbyterians have it in the Presbytery, which was always strange to me and still is, but... Uh, the the uh, in the Heidelberg the continental Dutch tradition, it, it's it really seemed to me to be largely in the congregation, but with good oversight from the classes. Now you'd want to comment on that because that's stuff you work with all the time. But. Well, sure, and and uh, you know you have a sort of original jurisdiction in the consistory. In the Dutch Reformed tradition, people like to make a distinction between broader and narrower versus higher and lower, but. But there's a, I think we would agree there's a lot of, uh, a lot of similarity as well. And so this raises an interesting question. He, uh, so he's got this Dutch Reformed background. He's raised with the Heidelberg Catechism. But, of course, he, spends his, he spent his uh, career uh, not teaching at Calvin Seminary, even though he did spend some time there, and they asked him to be president yes, at one point. Yes, that's true. Uh, but, uh, and he was sorely tempted to leave Westminster to go to Calvin because of that deep connection, and because he was a student there. And I think he was friends with, uh, uh, was it Kuiper, R.B. Kuiper? Uh, well, and they were colleagues on yeah. the faculty together. Sure. And so he, and, you know, I'm, of course, Dutch, and he's Dutch, and so we're clannish like the Polish are clannish or so, and... And our friends kid us about it all the time because they don't know other Dutch people. But that Dutch clannishness, in the good sense, was certainly part of his uh, culture. The, the, going back to go to a Christian school to see a graduation of a niece or something, all that kind of stuff. And then he, he certainly was devoted to the uh, uh, power structure, if you call it that, of, of the Dutch Reformed Church. He was at home with that. And, uh, but he spent his life in, as an exile, really, in a yes. sense, yeah. in the teaching at a Presbyterian seminary named Westminster and uh, working and serving as a minister in an, uh, a very American Orthodox Presbyterian church. Well, I personally felt that same thing because I spent 32 years teaching at Presbyterian Grove City College and working with those people. And, and, and it's not that you don't like them. It's just that when you have it in your blood and your roots, the, the, the Heidelberg tradition... The Dutch Calvinism, uh, uh, which he had, um, of course, he, he would be um, uh, unhappy with the direction of Calvin College these days. Now, that reminds me of another thing. I remember 1961, I graduated from Calvin in 60, and in 61, and again, uh, Professor Clark could check the date on this, but I think that 61 synod was the year that uh, the dispute about infallibility came out of the seminary to the Senate to be uh, determined, and there were two brothers in the seminary, obviously some professor involved. Uh, I'm not going to speculate on who it was. It's too long ago to remember, but um, at any rate, um, two things I want to say. One is I 
was around at that point. I was graduated and I was going to law school, but I, I, I was there for some reason because it was such a big thing. And I'd studied with Evan Runner and he was interested in it. And then Uncle Case came to that Senate who uh, I think here in C, I don't think he was a delegate or anything. I think he just came, but I remember talking to him about it. And um, I think that he felt that when you question the infallibility of the scripture, you've already given up on it. And I, I thought about that later and took that position myself, that it, these kind of issues say, well, I'm just asking. No, you probably gave up already. And he was much interested in that 61 Senate and that issue because his heart and soul still was Dutch reform and that was his college and seminary and all that stuff. How often uh, did you get to hear Uncle Case preach? Well, um, Probably half a dozen times, but I have these sermons and lectures mm. on tape. And um, so we listen to them once in a while. I mean, I, I have them there, and it may be five years, and also, oh, I guess I'll listen to one of those again. And, and it's just pleasant. Of course, he's gone a long time now. I was a pallbearer when we put him in the ground. And so we, you know, we, we all loved him. And uh, there wasn't some kind of strange worship of his image or anything. He was just a lovable uncle. One of the things I appreciate, again, going back to Meether's biography, is the way he connects Ventil with Voss. And, oh, yes. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever had any sense of that. or if, well, Yes, I did, and I got a little story about that. Um, there's no question that Voss was very important in his life. Um, Dr. Clark would understand that better probably than I, partly because I was younger and partly because I'm not formally trained in extensive theology like he is. But we've read Voss's books, my wife and I, and uh, Pauline Theology and so forth. And, and then I know that there's a picture of Uncle Case in his study at uh, Westminster East. And it's so neat because right behind him is the portrait of Professor Voss, and you can see him there. But I remember um, Uncle Case telling about when Voss died, he had a beloved dog and I, I, I think I got these facts right. It's a long time ago, but I think I got them right. And, and he'd buried that dog upstate in New York or something. And so when he died, he wanted to be buried with that dog. So they took him up and buried him with that dog. And Uncle Case liked to tell that story. So. I, honestly, I've never heard that story, so that's lovely. I think it's important for people to realize that, uh, that these fellows whom we venerate to a certain degree, uh, and, and rightly so, because they've been so helpful. Although he wouldn't like it. Well, <laughs> yeah, and maybe venerate's not the best word, but, but respect, uh, you know, in, in, in obedience to the fifth commandment. Um, uh, so, yeah, you, you make a good point. Perhaps venerate's not quite the right word, but they, they've, had, they've been so influential on us and shaped us in so many ways chiefly because they've pointed us to Christ and they've pointed us to the Reformed faith and they, they, they've helped us in so many ways. And yet, it, I think it's so helpful for us to, to understand that these are real human beings. Well, you talked in passing yesterday about, uh, we chatted a little bit about this, and you, you made the reference a reference to the fact that, and I don't care who it is right now, it's not the point, but that somebody has characterized him. And I run into people who characterize him and others. Uh, in, in a manner we call hagiology, that is to say they make him into a saint. If he heard that, he immediately would say in Van Tillian humor form, oh yes, I'm a saint, but we're all saints in, this, in, the, in the biblical sense, not like uh, St. Augustine or one of the church fathers, which some people wanted to elevate him 
Uh, and he didn't like that very much, that being elevated by people. I, I think that the kind of um, spin that the Rush Dooney crowd put on him after he was dead, uh, you know, they, they, they played on that to maybe for their own benefit. I know that whole movement well, and um, I have some personal views. I'll just leave those aside right now. But uh, that's a kind of hagiology and hagiographic work that he would not appreciate. He, he did, I think I uh, remember him um, knocking down that kind of thing. Of course, the same thing was true of Billy Graham, who I knew personally and did some work for. I was at a meeting with his people privately, and they, he was going to speak, and one of the guys got up and uh, said, well, now we got Billy Graham, the greatest thing since St. Paul, and he was really angry about it. Uncle Case was the same way. He did not like that kind of view of himself. He saw himself as a preacher. And, uh, and he's a Calvinist. I mean, yeah. it, it you know, in, in order to to make these people into Byzantine figures with a with a halo behind their head, uh, you have to sort of take them out of their own setting and and in effect deny their their theology. Uh, I mean, Case Ventil understood the Synod of Dort. He understood the the doctrine of depravity. Uh, and from what I know of him, uh, you know, not only did he confess it, but uh, you know, but he believed it to be true of himself. It wasn't just a theory for him. It was it was a way of understanding himself and, and other people. I remember hearing him pray, mm-hmm. and it's like my father and others. But um, there, there's something about it. he he had that deep, warm, personal conversation with God, and there was an earnestness about it, but a contentment and happiness and all those other good things too that we know go with uh, uh, people who pray. And talk to God regularly. That was him. When I went to Grove City 35 years ago, I was there helping bring the school around to a Christian perspective. And a couple of years later, we hired a fellow, John Sparks, who had been a big man on the campus at Grove City years before. And we became good friends. And over the years, uh, we got talking about Uncle Case. And he related that when he was in law school, at night, sitting in bed, reading Defense of the Faith, he became a Christian. And uh, if you know defense of the faith, you say, well, that's interesting. And I had a chance to ask Uncle Case, did you ever hear of anybody becoming a Christian through reading defense of the faith? And he said, no, I haven't. I said, well, my good friend did. And I just want to add that John Sparks is a devoted uh, uh, fan and follower of Uncle Case and his uh, theology. And every three years he gets up in the chapel when all the students are there and he tells about his conversion experience, which I think is remarkable for him to do. And of course he refers to reading Uncle Case's defense of the faith while he was in law school. And of course he's a graduate of Michigan Law School. That's it for this edition of Office Hours. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Clark. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. Thanks to Young Me for graphics and Adam Klaus for technical assistance. You can hear all the previous episodes of Office Hours online at wscal.edu slash officehours. Click on Office Hours under Westminster Audio. Don't miss a single episode. Subscribe to Office Hours in iTunes or at wscal.edu slash officehours. Write us at officehours at wscal.edu. Call us at 760-278-1725. Leave a message and we may use it in a future broadcast. For more information about Office Hours or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online or call us at 888-480-8474. 
Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.